Thomas Watson wrote an amazing book called uh, All for Good. And I, I find his thinking on this subject uh, has been almost entirely alien to the way that contemporary Christians think. Uh, we tend to think that bad things are bad and that o good only comes from good things. That, that, that's it. And, uh, and Watson has uh, been a challenge. Uh, for me. And, uh, and as I've said in the weekly update, I'm, I'm thankful for the number of you who have reached out or said, uh, one, you know, that, that met me where I needed to hear uh, God's word. And I'm also uh, thankful for some who've said, wow, I never kind of thought about it that way. Um, and so I'm thankful that if, if I'm learning and I'm being challenged, and I bring that challenge to uh, my church family. Uh, I appreciate you guys uh, following through and, uh, and, and, and being challenged by it. I'm going to read in, in Romans chapter 8, verse, uh, starting at verse 27, which has been where we picked up from. The scriptures say, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also Glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Lord, we have looked at how bad things work for our good. And when we consider all of the questions and all of the difficulties that we can run into in terms of how we grapple with our faith, this is an area in which it is good and healthy and important that believers ask the question, if God if you, Father, are good, then why is there evil? Why is there wrong? Why is there suffering and temptation? And why are there periods of time when we feel like your presence is completely gone from our lives? And then we come to the question of, and how is it good that someone might sin? And we also ask the question, and how is it good that I might sin? And so, Father, we want to be extremely careful. We want to be extremely humble. We want to submit our minds and hearts to your word. And we want to believe in the truth of this incredibly powerful and important promise that if we love you and we are called according to your purpose and we believe that by faith that is true, if we love you and are called, then all things work together for our good. Good things and wicked things. And so, Lord, we pray as we look at the scriptures that you would teach us. Help us to analyze what is written in your word and then to trust as we seek to reason through it. We pray that in all things that we would not diminish in one bit the, the sinfulness of sin. That we would look at sin and call it so and not allow our hearts or minds or the devil or the patterns of the world to say, because God uses that for good, therefore it is good. No. May we be serious about sin. 
but may we see how you transform it and use it and overrule it for good. We ask this humbly in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. The question of how can good come from bad uh, can exist on a number of levels. Uh, in the scriptures, the, uh, the disciples, the early disciples, are, are said to have found the Messiah. And one of them goes to another. Uh, I believe it is uh, Andrew that goes to Nathaniel, or Peter who goes to Nathaniel and says, we found the one called uh, the Messiah. And, oh, really? And yes, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That place is a, a cesspool. You know, it's horrible. He's like, nothing good can come from there. And the word back to this disciple is, come and see. Uh, I think that each of us can, in our own history, we can look at the wrong that has been done to us by others. And we can look out into the lives of others and we can see wrong that has been done and we can honestly assess our own actions and behaviors and say, we have wronged others, we have sinned against them. Now this scripture passage says this, that those who love God and who are called according to his purpose, for them all things work together for good. And that means this, that sin, sin in others, the sins of others are superintended, used, overruled, controlled, whatever word you want to use, by God for good. That is the promise. And the promise is this as well, that your sin... When it happens, when you sin, and we are not saying that it's the result of your issues. These are not mistakes. These are not oopsies. You know, that's a word, by the way, that's banned in my house. My kids say oopsie, and I'm like, don't say that. <laughs> you know, don't make light of what you've done that's wrong. Just be honest and say, I messed up. You know, I made a mistake. We're not, we're not talking in, in, in those kinds of categories. What we're saying is that when we look and we say, I have done moral wrong. I have strayed over the line of God's commandments. I have, I have either done what he has said not to do, or I have failed to do what he's commanded me to do. God uses that for good without calling the action itself good. There is a place in the book of Romans where Paul answers a question, okay? Now, when you read through Romans, you'll find that there are places over and over where Paul asks questions. And I believe this is because preaching audiences were much more volatile back in that day. They were full of what today we call hecklers, you know. Uh, back then, we might have called them interrogators or questioners. And I think that as Paul was preaching, they would interrupt we see this in, in different places. They ask a lot of questions. Sometimes they would even shout him down, and he wasn't able to finish what he was attempting to, to preach or to share. But in his letter writing, Paul predicts the questions that are going to be asked because people asked them when he was preaching and teaching live, and so he seeks to answer those questions then, right? Does that make sense? That's good leadership, isn't it? Right? You're going you're gonna to just predict, like, oh, you're going to have this question. Here, let me try to answer that. And someone will say, I have a question. Hold all questions to the end. That's, that's good leadership. So here's what Paul says. After presenting the gospel and saying that this is what happens when you put your faith and trust in Christ, all of your sin is placed on Christ. He dies on the cross and your sin dies with him and by faith in him you have righteousness. After establishing that, that, that the grace of God is preeminent and that you cannot outsin the grace of God and there are no things that you could do that would disqualify you or that are unforgivable if you come and you repent after laying all that out and saying that that justification being declared righteous by God depends on faith in what Jesus has done Paul knows what some people will think they will say wait a minute 
when I sin, that gives God an opportunity to forgive, and that makes God gracious, and that's a good thing, and so sin is good? That's the logic. The logic is, if I can't out-sin God's grace, then why fight sin, right? So Paul says this, to answer those who would ask this question, Romans 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And then he says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then he talks about the fact that we have been united with Christ, that we have died with him and been raised to newness of life, that we are united with him in a death like his, and that we have a new life living within us that is like his resurrection life, and that we were crucified with him on the cross and raised to newness of life so that we can walk in a new way, a way of union with him. And we are no longer, verse 5 says, to be enslaved to sin. Verse 7, the one who has died has been set free from sin. And we have died with Christ, is what Paul says. So in verse 11, he says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay? Paul's doctrine on this is clear. The New Testament and the scriptures are clear. Sin is exceedingly sinful, okay? Sin is bad. Sin may be able to be overruled or used by God for good, but that does not change its essential nature when it happens. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's not like, hey, you know what? I'm just going to run this person off the road with my car because they're making me angry. And you know what? God will work it out for good. No, 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 no. No. It doesn't work that way. Okay? God causes good to come from the most improbable source because he is good. But that does not mean we ought to make any contributions to his plan. Right? He doesn't need any help working it all out. He doesn't need any more raw material to work with, right? So I'm pointing out the fact that Paul says in Romans 8 that all things work for good, but he says earlier in Romans 6, like, you know, sin is not good, and, you know, this is not like Doritos, like the motto used to be like, crunch all you want, we'll make more, right? No, no, no. Resist. Fight. Okay? Be, be free. Don't let... Verse 12, sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passion. So, let's take a look. Two categories. The sins of others are used, overruled, superintended by God for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Okay? We live in a world where when we choose to follow Christ, and this has been the story from the very beginning, you go all the way back to Abraham and those who predate him, those who choose to follow God live in a world that is consistently moving in the opposite direction, where there are people making choices which are contrary to the will of God. And so every believer has always lived and dealt with this environment. And yet God has brought good from the evil around them. The sins of others work for good to the godly. How? Well, first, they create godly sorrow. God's people ought to look out at the world and weep over what we cannot fix, what we cannot change. There is one person in your life that you can change, and that is you. Everyone else, it takes guidance, wisdom, pleading, prayer, but you're only in control of you and your toddler, maybe. Yeah, that's why I said maybe. Psalm 119, verse 136, expresses the heart of the believer where the believer says, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. 
The wicked rejoice in sin. Those who have no regard for God, they do what God commands them not to, or they refuse to do what God tells them to do, and they rejoice over it. They are proud of it. They think that it's fun, and they laugh or delight in what God hates. But for the believer who understands what sin is, when we see it in others, it creates a burden in our soul. And this expresses, I think, the heart of God in two ways. One, it shows the heart of the child of God for his heavenly Father. We long for our Father to be honored when we weep over the sins of others. We long for the world to function in the way that God intended it. And I think it also expresses the heart of Christ. Jesus looked at a crowd of Pharisees who were critical and judging him and tempting him to do good so that they might entrap him. And it said he looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. It is one thing to grieve over our own sins and to say, I am nervous because this sin might take me to hell, right? That's one thing. And, and, and by the way, that's a misunderstanding of what God has done in justification. But it's one thing to be nervous over our own sins and to grieve for what we might lose. To grieve over the sins of others is to express love for them and for God. And that being created in us is a good thing. The sins of others also ought to set us praying against sin. Sin promotes prayer. Stupidity and lack of wisdom and self-destruction and bad patterns and issues and mistakes and all these things, when we see them in others, what should we do? Look down our nose at them, judge them, say, man, you know, if they were as smart as me, their life would be different. No, we ought to say, Father, deliver them. Set them free. Save them. Thomas Watson says we ought to pray down the sins of the times, and if we cannot pray them down, then we ought to pray against them. I believe God honors these kinds of prayers. When at 21, I came to myself and remembered that I was far from my father, and I tried to look back as people asked me, what was it? What was the single thing that led you to turn into change? I looked back, and what I saw was a long line of faithful people who cared for me, prayed for me, and reached out to me over and over and over again. People looking at me, looking at the pattern of my life, willing to pray and willing to speak up. What is that a result of? It's a result of my own foolishness and the faithfulness of other believers. The sins of others make us fall in love with grace. When you see disorder and chaos, right? Maybe you're like a Pinterest person, right? You know, and you look at pantry pictures or garage pictures, right? Or car pictures or whatever. And you see before, right? And before is like, you know? And then you see after and you see order and clean and neat and labeled and only going to last for 30 seconds, you know, and all that stuff, you, you see the difference as the two are set off in contrast to one another. When we see sin in others, it causes us to look for the grace of Christ or to look for grace in our own life and to value the grace of God. When we see pride in someone, what is it that grows in our heart? We express a love for humility, don't we? I wish that person would be more humble. Why? Because humility is good. When we see malice or rage 
or the intent to destroy, when we see somebody set in a, in a, in a mindset that makes them, you see them, they want to hurt somebody, they want to ruin somebody, they want to destroy somebody, that makes us love meekness and gentleness and self-control and kindness, doesn't it? We look at them and we say, this is the way that they should be, and we value the virtue that God could give them. The sins of others make us oppose sin with strength. Psalm 119, verse 126 and 127, the psalmist says, It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. He sees the sin of another, and then he resolves that the Lord would act because the laws have been broken. But then he says, therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. The breaking of God's commandments by others does not result in the psalmist judging or saying that person is horrific and wrong. He doesn't dwell there. No, he says, okay, Lord, time for you to act. They broke your law. And then he says, I love your commandments more. And so as we see scripture informing us that the actions of others are sinful, and as our conscience, which is nurtured by the Holy Spirit, informs us that this or that action is sinful, then what we do is apply ourselves to work hard, work out our salvation with fear and trembling that we might live in a way that is pure and honorable before the Lord. As we see others run after sinful appetites, and self-destruction, we ought to say, is that person going to outdo me in their passion and pursuit of what they're excited about? Or am I going to run after the kingdom with greater energy than they are exerting? I'll just check in once a week at church. I'll just, I'll give the Lord three minutes in the morning reading the verse of the day, Right? Or is it, I am going to apply myself to this with my whole heart. I am going to seek to honor the Lord. There are those, Watson says, who outdo us running into prison. And we have been promised that we are running into a kingdom. And so we ought to oppose sin in ourselves with strength. The sins of others are a mirror or a reflection of our own heart. When we see sin in others, we see ourselves. And we ought to say, that is who I am apart from Christ. This is who I would be apart from his grace. Without the curbing, enabling, shaping, steering, guiding, opposing, leading grace of God, we would be overrun with bitterness. We would be deceived. We would be pursuing the passions of the flesh. We would be planting seeds which we would one day sow and reap a harvest of destruction. And we would have no right to call ourselves children of God but instead we are able to come to the Lord and to say apart from your grace that's that's me apart from your grace that's me and so the sins of others ought to make us more thankful for God's grace when we see a, a particularly wicked sin in someone else, when we see something that just causes us to cringe emotionally and makes us want to throw up, we ought to say, thank you that I'm not caught up in that. Thank you for delivering me. We ought to pray, thankfully, what the Pharisee prayed as a boast. In Luke 18, he said, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, right? He prayed that arrogantly because he had a massive problem, his own arrogance and his ego. 
But I think we can pray in thanks, Lord. Thank you that you have made me into the image of Christ. You have begun a good work, and you are not going to stop until it is completed. And you are transforming me, shaping me, changing me, delivering me. A number of years ago, as we were planning to uh, travel to Zambia, one of the team members said to me in tears, I have a boring testimony. Because we were going to share the gospel with our testimonies, you know. And I get to go and share and talk about the prodigal son and how I ran away and, you know, wasted a good portion of my life doing stupid stuff. And it feels dramatic and exciting. And, and her comment was, I've, I've always known Jesus, always. And I said, say it the way that I heard a pastor say it once. This pastor gets up and he says... Um, I'm thankful to the Lord because he delivered me from drugs and alcohol and all manner of wickedness at the age of four. <laughs> and that's exactly what the crowd did. They laughed. But then he starts to go on and talk about the importance of ministering to children when they're young. And we see that it's true that, that, that him being filled with the Spirit of Christ at that young age and, and growing his faith led him away from all kinds of hurt. Yeah. So I was like, go with that, right? You know, that's your testimony. It's good. And she did, and it was good. Uh, it, was a, it was a good testimony. The grip of the flesh, the pattern of the world, the accusations of, of Satan, all of these things... Can, can, can pile up and can lead us away. But we can look to the Lord and we can say, thank you for delivering me from thousands of temptations. Thank you for delivering me from millions of traps because of the influence of your spirit. The sins of others are a means of improving God's people. The more unholy some act, the more that we see our own need to pursue holiness. Psalm 109 verse 4 says this, In return for my love they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. You see the, the connection there? He attempts to do something right. They respond wrongly. And he does not say, well, they did it to me, so I'm going to fire back. No, instead, he says, I give myself to prayer. And so their sin prompts him, reminds him to do what is good and right. Finally, the sins of others give us an opportunity to do good. They give us an opportunity to minister and to serve. When we see sin, I believe we have two opportunities to help. The first is that we can say to someone who is caught up in wickedness or stupidity, there is a better way. Try living like this. And the second thing is the very mission of the church is to say, this is where deliverance comes from. You need Jesus. The opportunity to share the gospel is presented to us by the fact that we see others lost and wandering in darkness. We are given an opportunity to do good, which is signaled to us by the fact that others are bound up and caught in their sins. And so God overrules their sin by bringing the grace of the gospel into that life. Many Many, many have heard the gospel at the worst points of their lives. They have heard the gospel in the middle of crisis because somebody saw what was going on in their life and said, you need Jesus, and they were ready to turn. Think about the promise made to those who turn others to righteous, righteousness. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, the Lord says this to Daniel, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars 
forever and ever. Those who turn many to righteous will shine like the stars forever and ever. Uh, I was out on a boat fishing with a friend the other night, and uh, as we're pulling back into port, right, like we, we've got one of these like beam lights, you know, and, and he's like scanning the water, looking for those signs, like the green ones take you back to port, you know, and the red ones are like you're not supposed to be sailing that direction. I don't know. I'm glad I wasn't piloting the boat then. It was much easier when the sun was up, right? And, and I could see everything. I was, I was kind of steering the boat in big circles then uh, at, that, at that point. That was what I was supposed to be doing. We were getting ready to drift. See, I'm an expert now on, on, on drag fishing. Um, think about this. The good that is produced in God's universe is this, that, that when we turn someone from the error of their ways by showing them Jesus and God works in their heart and raises them from the dead and draws them to himself. It says here that those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. This is not a light bulb, folks, right? The light that's out there right now that we're enjoying that's flooding in these windows, that's starlight. And we don't want to be a whole lot closer to it. You know, because like everything would catch on fire, right? It is, it is intense and, and, and fiery. And when we turn others to righteousness, God's glory and grace is magnified and he shows grace to his followers and he rewards them and honors them and draws new believers into his kingdom and heaven celebrates. All of this is built on the fact that sin is still exceedingly sinful, but these are the ways in which God takes it and changes it and uses it. Secondly, our own sins are overruled for our good. Again, there is not the least bit of good in sin, and we saw Romans chapter 6 and Paul's comments on that. James points out that desire, it begins with a thought, it begins with the intention of, of the heart, it, dis, it begins with setting the affection of, of the believer on something that's contrary to the will of God. It says that when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when fully grown, brings forth death. And yet, God in his power makes sin turn to good for his people without the help of his people with their sin. Does that make okay? So just want to make sure we like completely wall that thought off. And, 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 and hopefully you'll hear me saying, you know, when you're like, but, but if I do this, God will produce good. You'll just hear me saying, that's wrong. Okay, don't do that. St. Augustine said that God would never permit evil if he could not bring good out of evil. And that doesn't minimize the evil of what we do one bit. Uh, the first bit of good that comes to us from our sins through God's ministry is this, that sin makes us weary of this life. The pattern of life that is ruled by sin. A believer carries around their sin like a weight. It is a burden, and it ought to be something, not that they cherish and prize and protect, but that they say, why do I have to carry this? Why is this with me? Why is this on me? Think about what Paul said. He says this in Romans 7, 24, one of the most hopeless verses, I believe, in Romans, which gives way to the wonderful promise of 7.25. Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Why is he able to cry this way? Because he understands and knows his own sinfulness. He knows it, and therefore he cries for deliverance because sin has made him weary. Sin makes us cherish Christ more. Think about it. When you are sick, I don't know how Nancy does this, right? She has this switch in her head that was not installed in, in, in my head. Nancy will, 
will get a sniffle or a sneeze, or she'll get this wave of weakness that you feel when you're starting to get sick, and she will say, no, and she's just able to flip the switch. I don't know how this works. If I could get it, I would. But me, I'm like, I'm getting sick, and she's like, don't get sick, and I'm like, I, uh, right? And then I fall to pieces, and I'm lying on the couch, and you know, she's like, are you okay? And I'm like, no, like, make me food and stuff, and serve me, and you know. And then, and then in absolute misery, you're like, can I get into the doctor today? You know, and you call and you go to see the doctor and you're like, I need medicine. And the doctor's like, I will prescribe this and you will feel better. And you're like, thank you. Thank you. Like you've changed everything about my life. It works the same way with the Lord. When we have that wave crush us of what a wretched man I am, Paul moves from Romans 7.24 to 7.25 where he immediately follows up by saying, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? The Israelites were out there wandering in the wilderness, complaining against God, and fiery serpents came into the camp and began to bite them, and they were dying, and they were crying out for deliverance, and Moses made this bronze snake, and he placed it on a pole, and they, they lifted it up, and the scriptures say that whenever anyone was bit and they began to die, if they looked to the snake, they were healed. How thankful do you think they were for that? I've been, I've been bitten, I'm going to die. Oh yeah, there's that thing. I'll look at it, and I'm healed. Really glad you built that, Moses. Thank you. God is good. He provides a, 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 a means of deliverance. And so our sin, when it weighs on us, it also makes us thankful for our Savior. Our own sense of sin then drives us to action to bring change, to muster all of our energy cooperating with what God is doing in us we bring our intent and our focus into transformation. And there are six ways, I believe, that we bring action. The first is soul searching. We take God's word into our heart and we study not just the ways in which God benefits us or blesses us, but instead we take a look at the scripture and we see how it is that we have fallen short of his standard. And we see where our life is out of sync with God's word or where we are transgressing or walking in a manner that's not pleasing to him. Job says this to the Lord, how many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression. He wants to know, how have I gone wrong? And when we know ourselves and we see our own failure, are we more inclined to flatter ourselves and say, everything's good, I'm good, man, I just, you know, I'm so thankful that I've got Jesus so that someday when I die, I'll go to heaven. No, we're like, I need him every minute and every hour. We depend. Awareness of our sin also sets us to self-denial. It sets us to tearing down the uh, powerful, overwhelming image that we have of ourself. They used to fill the bottom of, of wooden boats with stones and gravel to, to ballast them and balance them. Because wood, they make boats out of wood for a reason, because wood floats, right? But if you float too much and the waves come, like you, the boat gets flipped over. And so they throw a bunch of junk in the bottom there to weigh it down, to root it in the water so it sits low enough so that it doesn't get thrown over. When we see our sin and our failure and our hypocrisy, and we've seen the ways in which we have strayed from the Lord and we take a clear look at them, it removes pride and arrogance and pulls it far away from us. And we see ourselves with some degree of humility. What does Paul say? He says that we are to take an account for ourselves. 
We are to judge ourselves. We are to look at ourselves so that we might not be deceived. Let he who thinks he stands, Paul says, take heed lest he fall. Right? We're to inspect ourselves. The third thing that we can do then is we can judge ourselves. I believe a great temptation is to judge others and leave ourselves free from judgment. We see in the scriptures, Jesus points out that we ought not to judge whether others are worthy of life. But when it comes to our own sinfulness, when it comes to our own standing before God, Paul says this, if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. The connection here is that we say, I am a sinner, and we say, I commit these specific sins, and this is the way in which I have been wronged, uh, which I have wronged the glory of God, and, and I've failed to honor him. And when we judge ourselves, what the scripture here says is that we will not be judged. Because we say, I am a sinner, and we submit ourselves to the judgment of God, and we find out that Jesus Christ will take our sins and make us righteous. We judge ourselves, and we are acquitted by the promise of God and the blood of Jesus. And you know what this means? It means that we are firing Satan from the job of judging us. We're able to say when he says, you're this. Like, I know that. Admitted that. Took it to court already. Forgiven. What, 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 do, you, what do you got? To, you have nothing to say. Right? We, we deal with it. And we go to the Lord and we say, take this from me. Save me. Deliver me. Forgive me. And he does. The promise of scripture is this. If we confess our sins... Confessing sin is the, the step that comes after we judge ourselves and say, I've done wrong. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He promises that he will, and he does. And so he is faithful and just. When we judge ourselves, we see ourselves truly, we search our soul, we are then put in a position of self-conflict where we oppose ourselves, The Bible says that the spirit makes war with the flesh. The desires of the flesh are set against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other. Paul points out that, that the desire of the flesh is to keep you from doing the things that you want to do, right? But what is the desire of the spirit? Based on this verse, to promote in you doing the things that we ought to do, right? Where there is no sense of, of wrong and there is no sense of, of wickedness within us, we will not make war. We will just kind of cruise. And so we need to know who we are so that we can wage the warfare that we need to. In Revelation 2.17 Sorry, 2-7. Jesus says to the sinning church, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then he says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. This is a conquering that goes on throughout our Christian life. It is not attained or finished or completed like, like this in a moment when, when we believe. No, it's a battle that goes on and on, and we need to be continuously pressing forward to overcome. Knowing that sin is a betrayer, knowing that our flesh is going to oppose us, knowing that, that, that we could sacrifice our beliefs and our principles to, to gain something that we desire in a moment of temptation, we set our hearts on observing ourselves. Jesus says, above all, guard your heart. No, that's just Solomon, sorry, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 4. I think it's verse 23. Solomon says, above all, guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. 
when we know and see our sin we will watch ourselves knowing that the biggest problem that we encounter each and every day is managing ourselves properly we are our own worst enemy and we need to guard Solomon's advice we might say guy's a hypocrite look at what he did with his life well maybe it's really good advice coming from him right look at the wreckage that he made and introduced into his own life by not guarding himself. And then finally, knowledge of the self, knowledge of our own sin, sets us on a path of continuous repentance. Knowing the truth encourages us to seek out sin and drive it out. What is this an effect of? Yes, the grace of God. Yes, the spirit of God. Yes, the word of God. But being aware of our own sin, seeing how we fail, seeing how we fall, sin itself and the failure of it drives us to drive sin out. And therefore, it works for our good. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 59. When I think on my ways... I turn my feet to your testimonies. Do you see that connection? When I think about the way that I go, when I think about the natural tendency of my life, when I think about the things I've done and the way I've acted, I turn. I, I repent. And I, I head this direction now. It is God using our failure to instruct us and to prompt us to head in another direction. I want to finish off by saying that we ought not to think lightly of sin. I believe it is very possible that Solomon presumed upon his precious position before God. I believe, I could be wrong here, I'll admit it if I am, that the name Solomon means loved by God, precious to God. Did the fact that he was so blessed make him think that he could get away with anything? That he did not consider the fact that poor choices and a lack of control and a lack of pressing in and asking God for continual protection and deliverance did that lead to destruction in his life. David was forgiven for his sin. He went to the Lord and he confessed. We have that very famous Psalm, Psalm 51, which he, which he wrote after his sin with Bathsheba. But he prays from a position of brokenness. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He understands that sin brought destruction into his life, ruined his family, ruined his kingdom. And so let each and every one of us guard our hearts and make sure that we do not fall victim to the idea that sin is no big deal. At the same time, let us rejoice in the goodness of God that even in our worst moments, he is at his best. That, that when wrong has been committed against us or when we see wrong, that there are effects in our life which are good and that we ought to rejoice and engage the mission that God has given us, whether it is to share the gospel with someone else or to live the goodness of the gospel in our own lives. Let the warnings against sin be enough. May we need not to experience the pain. One or two words of encouragement as we finish. If you're here this morning and you are thinking, uh, I don't know what this is all about. You know, I, I, don't, I don't have that assurance that I am forgiven within me. I see my own sin and I am anxious. It is as simple as putting your faith and trust in Christ. The scriptures say that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might 
become the righteousness of God, that Jesus gives us his righteousness when we trust in him. And so that is the first step to say, I am a sinner in need of a savior and to receive it by faith. Second, if you are a believer and you are caught in a sin, you are bound up in something, you are, you are, are pressed in and, and you are struggling, I'll give you the advice that my pastor gave me years and years ago. The power of every sin is in the secret. And the deliverance comes when we trust and let someone in. So I want to encourage you to confess to someone. You don't have to jump up in front of the whole church and say something, but, but I believe it's James who says, confess, John, sorry, that says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed, delivered, delivered. First John? James 5.16, yeah. It's, you're always safer if you say Paul, but yeah, we're going to wrong there. Yeah. And then finally, be assured that wherever you have been, whatever you have done, that the love and grace of God overrules all. There is no sin that is unforgivable. There is nothing that we can do that will distance ourselves so far from him and his love that if we come to him and say, I need your grace, I need your forgiveness, he will not say, go away. He will say, welcome home. And so be encouraged that all of this is rooted, all of these effects, all of these blessings are rooted in God's love for his children. And rooted in the work of Jesus on the cross to bring deliverance and forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I pray for each and every one. As we struggle with difficulty, as we are sinned against, as we fail and fall and struggle, and as we look at the wreckage that we've created and we say, what now? How does this glorify you? How do, or how do you love me after this? I pray that we would pray the prayer that Paul prayed and think the thought, believe the response that you spoke to him. You said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. Father, may we look at what you do with wrong and with sin and Rejoice that you are able and willing to do that. May we look at our own sins with hostility and seek to drive them out, thanking you for bringing them to our attention, but committing to live in a way that glorifies and honors you. Lord, we pray that we would never make light of sin, but that we would rejoice in our Savior, trusting in and relying on his promises. Thank you for forgiving us and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. May we cling closely to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and close this service with a song.